Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We've got two authors. Now, Jan, did you know books are dangerous animals? One has to be careful what you may find in them. And so it is with Richard Holt's collection of stories suitably entitled What You May Find. So, Richard, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, many of these pieces are micro-fiction. Can you just clarify for me what micro-fiction is? People use various descriptors, but I like very short stories. Uh, But... Microfiction to write microfiction to read it, it it is a different beast to uh, a short story. I'm I'm sure having read the collection, you, you probably agree. Um, and it's a form in which much more needs to be left off the page. Uh, in many ways, it's more demanding of the reader. Uh, in that we are requiring the reader to bring things in to complete uh, the story. So how does it differ from, just say, a short story? Uh, to a large extent, it's in detail, but it's also in... Uh, microfiction is a very playful form. Uh, there, it ranges from stories that are little more than vignettes, little more than snapshots in time, uh, right through to complex stories in which, although we leave a lot of the detail off the page... There is the usual, you know, tick box of of character and story development and plot and resolution, but uh, as I said, much of it we are requiring the reader to bring in uh, to uh, complete the story. Well, let's give the listener a, a little sense of of what microfiction is. I'm going to read a story, one of the stories. They're short enough to be read on air. This one's called Peeling Away. I came across a lonely billboard with its top layer half peeled off. It read. Jesus Christ, pure indulgence. I went in search of its meaning. Traditional churches turned me away. The religious fringes beckoned. The image of the deity in sacred robes and black stockings drove me on. Drawn at last to the town of Parchment, I came to the church of the Angel of Redemption. You were coming down as I was going up. Those legs, those stockings, the feline grace as you took the steps half sideways in your heels. You were the one. Pure indulgence, I repeated. I turned. When I caught up to you in the afternoon sunshine on the stubbly main road of parchment, you told me I'd been right to follow. He works in mysterious ways, you said. We went away together. For three years we built our life around your strangeness. But this morning you were gone. Suddenly adrift, I caught a bus back to the place where I'd read the message that had guided me to you. But all that remained beside the highway was the last shredded pieces of something too faded to mean anything at all. (laughs) What can you tell us about that story? Well, well, I guess it's one of those stories that obviously it resolves at the final moment. And the final moment is probably where the story began. Just exploring the notion of change and of things fading. But it's not about character uh, so much as about people's behaviour in some ways. People's behaviour and uh, also, you know, uh, I guess just the nature of a world that uh, evolves and where the past moves away from us and and becomes 
something that is not important and the present is not what we expected it to be. Are you saying anything about religion in there, the, the broader uh, issues or ideas? Of- I think religion was just a, a great framework to use for a little... It's, it's a little riff of mine on that concept. Uh, and you can have fun with religion and religion implies... It's that thing of bringing things in from off the page... Religion implies so much about culture. So by uh, uh, referencing religion, I guess I'm saying to the reader, bring in all this stuff to this story and, you know, just go with me on this. Yeah, well, I mean, you've taken that sort of phrase, he works in mysterious ways, which is sort of almost cliched. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm working with cliche here. You know, we've got the cliche of the advertising imagery mm. and, yeah. But people can identify with that sort of thing and it brings a wealth of ideas in that one appeal to that line. It's a very thing. ideas story, yeah. that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But it's it's almost Python-esque in, you know, follow the gourd, follow the sandal. It's not so much about religion. It's about human behaviour and content. Yeah, conduct, precisely. You know? And and it's it's also a, a bit of a, an exercise in minimalism in yeah. any case, you know. I mean, Minimalist also is one of the first stories called A Float. And you have a landlocked individual who finds himself washed up on an island. But the focus is not on how he got there, but how he was finally remembered after his death. So there's not the sort of, oh, you know... Exercise of, of trying to investigate or explore how this landlocked individual got onto an island. That's immaterial. It's that last line of, well, his landlubber friends didn't think about the island and, and he's remembered in different ways. Yeah, it, it's, that's a, an interesting story because I guess I was thinking about how different cultures value different um, traits in people. So he he sails on a, on a sort of... Heath Robinson-like raft and lands uh, is, is sort of uh, lands on an island where the inhabitants of the island take him in because they love his the fact that he's nuts uh, and that's a, that that's a mad thing to do and he spends a, a month on the island. Well, you seem to have then expanded a little more. He's nuts and mad thing to do, but we never know. That madness about him. I mean, he, he'd made uh, on a raft he'd made from flooring offcuts and bamboo poles from Bunnings. There's not so much about his idiosyncratic behaviour and uh, that madness that led him there, if such it is. No, the, the story is actually about two communities a yeah. community at home to which he doesn't belong, but to which he's tied, and a community he only visitors, visits for a brief time in his life mm. who. Uh, remember him in perpetuity. Yeah, and and in different ways from, you know, where where they began. Uh, there are longer stories in this collection. One's called The Temptation of Ludovico Caracci. Was he an actual painter? He was. The, he was. the, the three painters mentioned in uh, that story are uh, 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 two brothers and, and a cousin who were um, very uh, important Renaissance painters. You've got a connection with art, though. Uh, I, I did uh, begin my creative life as, as a visual artist and, and continue to combine visual art and, and text in various ways. So th- this story actually came out of a trip to uh, an exhibition. Did these rivalries and jealousies actually 
exist? Because that you touch on those sorts of ideas. Yeah, if, no, I, I I imagined having visited the exhibition. I imagined the context in which someone, you know, five hundred years ago may have painted a particular painting, and then I imagined reality television. And this is actually this is actually a story <laughs> about reality television. Now, you know, if you've read the story, you know that it's about rivalries between two women, uh, in particular, uh, in a, an enclosed environment, which is an artist studio uh, in Bologna, with uh, a group of artists uh, working. Uh, the the men who are there, the young men who are are trying to be uh, to learn from them, and the young women who have other reasons for hanging around. I mean, I hadn't made that parallel to reality television, but now that you say it, it's it's quite possible. So you know, the ladies over here are, are nodding away politely. So this is what we do as writers: is, yeah. is you know, you grab a this here's a Renaissance picture, and and. I'm thinking. Well, what is the what's what's the prize in being a model in a Renaissance studio? And the prize is to be the Virgin. But uh, then, but then we can <laughs> we, we can well depicted as the Virgin, shall we say? Which opens up, opens up all sorts of possibilities yes. about who then gets to represent the Virgin. Yes. And are they worthy? Um, you've got another little odd one, and, and we're now getting into this realm of almost uh, poetry. You've got a story called The Swimmer, and where, is, where the swimmer thought he heard a voice while going along the beach. The next day he hears that he goes out, and ultimately he becomes the voice. And it's a sort of almost like a poetic conceit. In some ways, it turns on itself. Yeah, very much. It's that that idea of uh, seeing oneself at another time, not re- and and in this instance, not realizing that that's what you're doing until that time comes around. Uh, it's and it's a bit of a I don't know. Is it a ghost story almost? It's it's um, it is. Uh, it's playing with realism because it starts as, as a, a story that appears to be a realist story and then it unpacks to something that's a little more around a sort of magic realism. But let's, let's take this poetry idea a little further. Here's another art story, Her Dark Ground. Adelaide kept a locked book of recipes for black, 30 or so, each with its mood and purpose. Every canvas she painted began as one of those shadowy combinations. Choosing the right one, mixing it, spreading it over white gesso, was all that kept her painting, and painting was all that kept her. Only when her chosen ground was as close to perfect as she could make it would she obliterate it beneath the effusive colour around which her reputation had been built. Now, that's almost poetic in the conceit there. We start with a black base, but there are different types of black, but her reputation's about colour. Yeah, I I think that's a a good pick. You know, you could reframe that, repunctuate it, and turn it into a piece of prose poetry pretty easily. And the the, uh, structure of the story itself, it's... it's almost a vignette. I, I I think it's a little bit more than a vignette. Um, 
but I, I think that it, yeah, I, I, I could submit that to a prose poetry collection and, and I'd be happy but with it. We're getting into all these definitions, vignette, microfiction, short story, and, and you blur the lines because they move across each other. But it is, in many ways, poetic, this, these poetic notions for the reader to read into it. I think that's what happens when you start to minimalise because, uh, it's, and in part, it's the relationship with the reader uh, is you, you're requiring uh, a little bit of effort from the reader, as you do with poetry. But uh, you've also blurred the boundaries with your artwork as well because you were telling me off uh, air just prior to this of words coming into your painting. That's where I started writing microfiction, was, was writing narrative texts on, on uh, canvases, on, on billboards, on, on a whole range of, of visual platforms. I didn't know it was microfiction because there was no internet to tell me what it was I was doing. So how much of art is, is actually writing? How much of writing is painting with pictures? Ah, oh, I regard writing as drawing. Um, as soon as you, as soon as you make it physically, I, I, you know, I'm, which I have odd ideas. I have a collection of old typewriters. As soon as I start typing, I'm, I'm making drawings. You know, we, what we do as, as writers in part, and what we sometimes forget is we make marks on paper, on screen or whatever that have meaning. And to me, it's, it's a form of drawing a lot of the time. And words evoke images, and that's part of, of what uh, writers do, to paint a portrait, so to speak, for uh, readers to imagine and build that framework of thinking or, or uh, the landscape in their heads, in their imagination. Well, I hope there's plenty of um, images like that in this collection that people can uh, read and then, then you know... Uh, visualise. Well, the collection is called What You Might Find, and as we've already discovered, there's a lot you might find. The author is Richard Holt, and it's a Spineless Wonders publication. So, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I'm inviting Anna Snookstra into 3CR. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Oh, good. Now, Anna has... Well, she's created her own town, Comstock, and I'd like Anna to... Let you, Listen to it. Okay. Um, After the car factory shut down, Colmstock had quickly lost its sense of purpose. Once it had been pleasant, the largest town in the area and right off the Melton Highway, it was considered a nice place to stop off for a night on your way to the city. Small enough to have a strong community, but big enough that you could walk down the street without knowing every person you passed. These days, everything in Colmstock was broken and ugly. People weren't so friendly anymore. Too many residents had swapped a social drink or two for a meth habit. Crime rates were up. Employment was down. Well, of course, in this small town, the police were the power base and crime was often blamed on the Fossickers. Who Mm -hmm. were the Fossickers? Uh, They're a small community of people that live in kind of intense and kind of almost like a shanty town. Uh, and they fossick for opals as a way, as an income. Mm, to support their meth habits. <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> but walking up and down the streets, it was a kids group that did the most scaring. What were those kids doing? Uh, that's uh, what I call them in the book the paper plate kids. <laughs> so they're basically a, a group of children around probably 10 to 12, and at first they seem 
almost cute. Like they wear these masks that they've made themselves out of paper plates and they've almost something you might do in, in a, a like craft project at mm. school. And they've like cut eye holes and painted faces on these plates and they're wearing them as masks. But then as it goes on, this group kind of gets mm. more and more sinister. <laughs> well, the police, they're a, a, a strong group, drink at the Eamon Tavern and Rose and her best friend Mia work at the pub. Now, this is a quote. There's their senior sergeant, Frank Gerardo, Gerardalo. He'd never been big on alcohol, but in the last few years, he'd developed a small drinking problem just to be close to Rose. And he's, he's now got a new sergeant, uh, another local, Bazza, and from the book. What Frank hoped would happen is that on their days off, Bazza at the barbecue, Mia tossing a salad, Rose bringing him a beer and sitting on his knee as he drank it. Well, Rose, the barmaid, is aware of Frank's affection, but she's got quite different aspirations. Mm. What does she want to do? So she hates this small town. She's dying to get out. Uh, She really wants to be a journalist. That's always been her dream. Uh, And it's a dream that's looking like it's probably not going to happen. She's turned down, we found out, very... She got to second second spot for a cadetship. Mm-hmm. So she's so close, so mm-hmm. close. But she's also got another problem. She actually has to get out of the family home. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, so she's still living at home. Uh, she's 25 years old and um, her mother's remarried and had a new lot of kids Good that sir. are, you know, under, under 10. And so she... They've been. She's been told that she has to move out. Time to maybe. move out. Um, but it's a small town where the rent prices are still relatively high, even though there's a lot of empty houses because people have had to leave. Mm. Uh, so she's in this she's position where she's not making enough money really to look after herself. And she's very sort of sad about leaving the youngest of her step um, sisters, little Laura. The youngest and little Laura knew her ability to hide was the one good thing about being the smallest. (laughs) The story starts with a fire. What happened? Uh, Well, it's an interesting because it starts with the fire and you think you know everything about it, but (sighs) as it gets closer to the end, you realise you know nothing about what happened with the fire. But that's how the story begins, which is the courthouse burning down and um, a kind of teenage boy being trapped in that building. Uh, And it's kind of meant to be that law and order is destroyed yeah. as soon as you go into the story. Law and orders. So there's arsonists. The there's you know, catastrophe, and then Rose actually needs Frank, the policeman's help with mm-hmm. Laura. This was spooky. <laughs> Why? Uh, so basically, these uh, porcelain dolls start appearing on the original title for this book was actually dolls. Uh, the they start appearing on doorsteps of uh, families that have small children. And the dolls look like the daughter of the family. So Laura finds this doll at the front of her house and it looks just like her and she thinks it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but as they start appearing around the town, people start getting worried, like something Ooh. sinister might be going on. So this is where Rose submits her an article to the local paper and quoting, unknown perpetrator leaving a series of porcelain dolls on doorsteps, terrorising local <laughs> families. Well, this brings her a little bit of fame, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and perhaps a little bit of belief in herself. Mm-hmm. But when she sends on another article about police brutality, different things happen to her. You know, she, uh, she's told that she's disloyal to honourable men in the town. 
and comments about her physically. You know, mm-hmm. she gets trolled. A few expressions of shock about the police brutality, but they tend to come from people who don't live in the town. So I'd like you to read a little bit about Jean, the tavern owner, and what, what her advice mm-hmm. to, Laura, uh, to Rose is. The comments were so aggressive, so full of hate. They went around and around her head. Another article would make everything, everyone even more angry with her. Hi, she said to Jean as she put her bag down in the kitchen. Jean turned to her and she could tell that she'd seen it too. Everyone's angry with me, Rose said. She put a hand over her face and her throat constricted and a choked sob came out of her. Jean took Rose's other hand and held it between her two palms. I'm not. Really? Rose asked. You're probably the only one. Tears were dribbling out of her eyes now. She tried to brush them away. I know you you were trying to do the right thing, Jean said warmly, but you've got to understand that this is a man's world. There's nothing we can do to change that. The best we can do is try to live in it without getting hurt. But it's so unfair. Steve didn't deserve to be bashed, and I don't deserve to have everyone saying such horrible things. Jean's eyes turned pitying. Rose, you're an adult. You won't survive if you keep being that naive. Oh, yes. Poor Rose. (laughs) Get out of there. Get out of there, I keep thinking. Well, she has to find um, somewhere to live, and so she thinks that she might just sort of creep into one of the rooms of the tavern. Mm -hmm. But there's also another guest, a paying guest, and no one knows why he's in town. But Rose finds out his name's Will, and she sneaks in into his room and she finds something rather spooky in his suitcase. (laughs) Yeah, she finds a teddy bear. Ah, and she also has a look and finds out what he's reading. A bird song. Bird song. Mm. And I like this. A bird song is a, um, a 1993 war novel. And it's based on two characters from two timelines, mm-hmm. which directly comes in to the ghost story that's alive about the tavern because mm. it used to be somebody's home. Mm. Mm. So this ghost story, Mia, the other uh, Rose's really good mate, she's got fortune-telling skills mm-hmm. too. Yeah. So we get a lot of this magical ghostly stuff and then we have the real true um, happenings that ha- from a country town, the suicides. Yeah. Yeah, oh dear. Yeah. We have Hope, Steve Cunningham and the application for the review of the shower mines reopening and then the menacing notes from the doll collector. <laughs> oh. And what really spooked me was when police brutality was pretty rife in this town. Mm. But when Rose gave another insight into police brutality, what did the media think of that? Uh, the Do you mean towards the end? Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I thought this was just terrible because it, really, um, it really altered Rose's whole idea. Uh, so <laughs> I'll read this out loud. Um, they cared when something unexpected happened something that confirmed the deep-seated fears they already held. They wanted black and white. Someone was good or someone was bad and nothing in between. Or at least that was what the papers thought they wanted. It was all they were willing to give. If something didn't sound good in a headline, it wasn't news. And if something wasn't news, it didn't count. Do you have a bit of a background, Anna (laughs) Sinatra, in this media world? 
Uh, not really. I mean, I wrote for a um, like an arts review magazine, but I never wrote, uh, like I was never a journalist. I did read a lot of uh, especially British publications like The Sun and that kind of thing before I wrote this. And I based oh. a lot of the articles on this from those kind of magazines. And they were actually quite tricky to write in that really kind of inflammatory, over-the-top way. But it's definitely something I personally feel strongly about. You write, you write psychopathic good. very well. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Those very menacing letters from the dog collector. It sort of sat well. It, was, it really went on and on and on, and the twists and turns at the end mm. really had me thinking, oh, Oh, yeah, really? it's kind of a slow build at the beginning and then it really starts to kind of catch fire towards the end, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think you've done a marvellous oh, job. Thank you. So this is your second book. Was yes. your first one still in this sort of psychological noir Yeah, fiction? it was. It was quite different though. Um, so the first one was really about a family and uh, it was in Canberra actually and it was the same family from two different uh, time periods. So it was a girl who goes missing, and then another young woman who replaces her, like, about 10 years later. So it's from those two perspectives. And it was really, I was trying to, like, really so you could see the house, you could see these different characters in different ways. So with this one, I just decided to be a lot more ambitious, and I was like, okay, I'm going to create, instead of a house, I'm going to create a whole town (laughs) and really understand this town. So I, like, drew maps of the town and brought things in from different places, even around the world, together. And almost everything in this book has happened in some way or other, but it's just from different places. Creepy porcelain dolls. That, yeah, that did happen. And that was interesting as well because um, it wasn't the articles about that, the porcelain dolls. That was in Orange County in the US that that happened. Um, but the reaction to it, especially in the comments and stuff like that, I, I should stop reading the comments <laughs> on these kind of articles, but I find them so interesting. And just the way that something that was really quite innocent, just porcelain dolls given to children, got built up and built oh. up until, I mean, it was went viral. People all around the world were talking about it and everyone was just leaping to these terrible conclusions. And that was kind of what I was interested in, bringing that perspective that was all over the internet and kind of putting it into a literal place. Yeah, from these magical fortune-telling mm-hmm. as uh, theoretical stuff, we really do come back to ground. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, it, it, yeah, good, good one, good one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I've been talking to Anna Snookstra. Sorry, Anna. Uh, would you, would you like to try and pronounce that again, I've been Jan? talking with Anna Snookstra. Perfect. Well, well About her book, Little Secrets, published by the Harlequin. Well, Richard Holt's got a fairly... Uh, what's, what's the origin of your name? Holt. Uh, oh, it's German. Means wood, as far as I know. <laughs> Easy. Uh, Easy. You, well... Snookster is a, a European, it's Dutch. Yeah, it's Dutch. So, Pike fisherman, that's what it means. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, the origins of language and getting your tongue around them at some stage. Well, mine's be, Goldsmith, well, that's pretty obvious. What about you, David? You well, it's just... a good Scottish name, MacLean, and oh. we come from the Isle of Mull in Scotland. <laughs> you had to ask, didn't you, Lassie? <laughs> but there you have it. So on that note, uh, we'll... Uh, We'll end the show. I better stop doing this, shouldn't I? I? better. (laughs) Yes, I was talking to Richard Holt about what you might find, but I love the name of the publishing house, Spineless Wonders. (laughs) Thank you very much, authors today.